Well, you don't have to be uh, teaching through books of the Bible very long to know it's kind of a balancing act between the proverbial spade and the plow. Or maybe I could put it this way. We want to look at the individual trees passing through the forest of Bible books, but we don't want to lose sight of the forest. I always think of it as like a map. If you're learning a particular city by map, if you lose sight of the overall layout of the city, sometimes the individual neighborhoods don't help you a lot with your directions. Um, I was looking over my notes. Actually, it's been about 13 months since we started the book of Ephesians, since we went through, went through an introduction of the book, and it's actually been over three months uh, since we were last here. Uh, so in keeping with helping us uh, to remember that an epistle is a personal letter, uh, it's, uh, in fact, you get to the New Testament, it's a new kind of Bible book, a personal letter. That's what an epistle is. And it's important to remember, I think it's a helpful mental, exer- mental exercise, that these were written as one single unit. It's not the verse divisions or chapter breaks are bad. Those are tools that help us to find our way around. But uh, when this was written to this original church at Ephesus, they would have unrolled this scroll and uh, no doubt read it in its entirety at a public meeting. So I thought it would be beneficial, having been out of the book for a little while, to, uh, in a sense, get in our helicopter and uh, go up for a panoramic view once again before we dive back into the individual verses again next week. I want to kind of reorient us with the overall content and theme of the book. Now, perhaps you recall the church at Ephesus was founded during Paul's third missionary journey. He'd actually stopped through there on his way back on his second missionary journey, but the door was thrown wide open when he returned there. You remember... Uh, He wanted to go to Asia, and the Spirit of God said no. God was going to do an amazing work in Asia, by the way, just not right then. Well, later on, that door was indeed thrown open, and Paul spent somewhere between two and three years ministering in the city of Ephesus. And he summarized it in 1 Corinthians 16, 8, and 9. He said, I will tarry at Ephesus until Pentecost, for a great door and effectual is opened unto me, And there are many adversaries. So he recognized God had supernaturally opened this gospel door and was allowing Paul to reap a great deal of fruit. But as is always the case when the real gospel takes root, a satanic ugliness rears its head, and Paul found both of those. Now there's good evidence that the influence of the gospel reached its high watermark in the first century Asia Minor And this particular church became sort of a flagship. They were mentioned first in Revelation 2 and 3. And they're commended there uh, primarily for their doctrinal soundness, the way that they were able to spot and reject false teachers. Now, uh, if you're familiar with that passage, you know they were also rebuked for having left their first love. Uh, So it is very possible to be doctrinally sound and lose our heart's affection for God Himself in the midst of being right. So Ephesus stands both as an example uh, and a warning in that respect. Uh, This, in addition to Paul, Timothy ministered there, as well as the Apostle John. In fact, history records that John died there in Ephesus ministering. So they had quite a spiritual pedigree. And uh, this particular letter is one of what we call the four prison epistles, which are written by Paul in his first Roman imprisonment. You can read about that at the end of the book of Acts. This is one of those he wrote from that Roman prison. And again, the theme of the book, and all of this is important, glory to God in the church 
by Jesus Christ. Every part of that is essential. And I'll highlight once again, if you've been here a while, you've heard me say it a lot, I will keep saying it because it's critical. The pattern of almost every epistle, there's a few exceptions, but not many, almost every epistle, here's the pattern. There's a doctrinal section first. There's the laying of foundations. There's the outlining of deep spiritual truth. And then you get to the practical section. How should I live in response to this truth? So what that shows us is right living, again, is not possible without right teaching. I mean, do we understand that basic premise? It doesn't matter how hard you try to live right. If you do not have sound doctrine, you can't. It doesn't matter how much you try to fight a particular sin tendency. How sincerely you repent. How much you want to turn from it. If you don't understand the Bible mechanisms for dealing with it, you can't. God doesn't invent plan B's for us. It's by His Word that we learn to war in the Christian life. So, right living is not possible without right teaching. The other thing this pattern shows us is that right teaching is intended to produce change in everyday life. Here's a simple way we could put this. If you are growing, you are changing. If you are growing in the Christian life, there are things in your everyday life that are changing and developing. You're getting more sensitive to sin. You're getting more aware of ministry opportunities. Truth is more and more flaming within your soul. It's a dangerous thing when we can get to a place listening to preaching or maybe reading a sermon or even reading a passage of Scripture and our response is, wow, that's amazing. But it doesn't translate from, wow, that's amazing, to what am I going to do about that amazing truth? You see, that's where it goes from merely theory to actual everyday application. And the epistles all follow that order, or most of them. A foundation, then what am I going to do about it? So, in typical fashion, the epistle to the Ephesians uh, chapters divides right in half. Chapters 1 to 3 is the doctrinal section. And what it's covering is the heavenly calling of the church. And you enter this section, by the way, it's like you may as well put a big flashing neon sign that says believers only. The truth mentioned in Ephesians 1 is not for the world. It can be if they come through the doorway to Christ. But the glorious things mentioned there, right off the bat in chapter 1, are for Christian people only. It's high and heavenly truth. By the way, let me just camp here for a minute. Talking about the heavenly calling of the church and glory to God in the church by Jesus Christ, I think there's probably no time in history, in fact, I'm quite certain, there's been no time in history where the local church has been treated so lightly as today. Uh, you can go back in Christian history, and that's a characteristic you don't find until recently modern times. So I want to challenge us to have a scriptural perspective in that regard. You know, I read a doctrinal statement recently when I was 
churches I haven't heard about, oftentimes I'll go and just, just curious to see. And I'm always thrilled when I find solid doctrinal statements. In fact, there's a particular ministry that called me about something from as more of a national organization. And I was, it thrilled my soul this past probably a week and a half ago to go through their doctrinal statement and find how solid it was. It was wonderful. But I was reading one of a particular church recently, and, and it was talking about the church. And here's what it said the church was. The church is every person who's ever believed in Christ in the New Testament era. I'm paraphrasing, but basically it's every believer in the church age. And that bothered me. Maybe you're thinking, why? That statement's not inaccurate. It's incomplete. Let me put it this way. Uh, in fact, you can verify this on your own. You can, you can take a Bible dictionary and, and a concordance and you can look up the English word church or churches. You'll find it 117 times in the New Testament. 105 of those are very plainly talking about a local assembly like this. Why is that important? 90% of the emphasis on the church in the New Testament is on the local manifestation of the body of Christ. Why is that important? Because somebody can be a disjointed floater and say, oh, I'm part of the church universal. Without ever actually obeying God and being part of the church local. Like we're supposed to be. Uh, that is no small error. It really isn't. Uh, I challenge you, search the New Testament and find any solid Christian there who treated the local church lightly. You'll not find it. Now you go through the emphasis on the local assembly in the New Testament, it's utterly massive going through the epistles. So we could say this, if you are a Christian, it is the will of God, and I say this unapologetically, for you to be an integral part of a local New Testament church. I'm not saying this one. We don't have the monopoly on truth, but I'm saying it is the will of God for you to be a part of an assembly, an integral part of it. That's where our gifts function. That's where our base of fellowship and ministry is. That's where we really grow. And you can trace this theme all throughout the New Testament. Uh, furthermore, we can say accurately, standing on the Scriptures, it is an impossibility for a Christian to reach their full potential and maturity and fruitfulness apart from the local church. It cannot happen. Unless we're locked in prison for our faith, it's not going to happen. So I want to I throw that out there again because that's a lot of the reason why church truth is covered and why the heavenly calling of the church uh, is dealt with at the beginning of this. This is part of this is this new entity that you and I are a part of. Yes, it has a universal manifestation, but when does the universal church take communion? It can't. When does a universal church observe baptism? It can't. How does a universal church exercise discipline? There's a bad word, but a biblical one. It can't. These are all local church concepts. All right, moving on from that, though. The doctrinal section, chapter 1 through 3. Um, chapter 1, the church is a body. And you find in verse 3 through 12 this hymn of praise to God the Father for His planning and calling out of the church. And the verbiage contained there is it's astounding. And if we know ourselves at all, 
And we read that, especially in our weak moments where we perceive ourselves as a failure, and you read that you were chosen before the foundation of the world. You were predestinated, you were adopted, you are redeemed, you are loved, accepted in the beloved. And this, all this lofty terminology, by the way, none of which can and will ever change. The things mentioned in Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 are positional truths that happen to every person who comes to Christ, regardless of experience or maturity level. Now, looking out over this room, it's a, it's, a, it's a practical guarantee. There's different levels of maturity represented in a room like this. But let me tell you what there's not. There's not different levels of being in Christ. Either you are or you're not. That's it. And the most struggling and immature believer is just as much in Christ as the most advanced saint on the earth. It's positional truth. The Christian person we find there is chosen by the Father, redeemed by the Son, sealed by the Spirit. And then at the end of chapter 1, we see one of the most magnificent prayers anywhere in all the New Testament. I've often told people, you want to learn how to pray for the Lord's people. At the end of chapter 1 in Ephesians, the end of chapter 3, two incredible prayers and the content of those. And one of the things he prays for at the end of the chapter 1 is that essentially we would know Christ's position. He's seated in verse 21. Far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come, and hath put all things under His feet and gave Him to be the head over all things to the church. Why is it important for us to know Christ's position? Because we are in Him. In other words, if you are a true believer, for you to go to hell, Christ would have to go there. And he's not. So Paul's praying that we would comprehend Christ's lofty position and understand uh, that we are in him. All right, chapter one, the church is a body. Chapter two, the church is a temple or a a building. It's an ongoing construction project. We touched on that some in Sunday school. Christ said, I will build my church. And uh, I think that applies on a historical level. He's been doing it for 2,000 years, and you and I haven't been around that long. But we can also claim that at a local church level. Who is it that builds this church? It's not me. I understand we work at it. I don't think you'd mind me sharing this uh, little tidbit, but uh, when Brother Johnson, he went down to Oklahoma, and uh, one of the older gentlemen came up to him and sat down with him and said, so, how are you going to build this church? And Eric said, you know, the... The thing is, the Bible says that Christ builds the church, not me. (laughs) That's a good answer. Now, I get what this brother was saying. Where are you going? I get that, but I appreciate the answer even more. It's not that we don't have a part, but our part's infinitesimal. It's Christ that builds the church. I've often wanted to put out under construction signs, and maybe sometimes it'd be good. I don't ever feel like, any of you ever feel like you need a hard hat on? You walk in here just covered in dust. I'm, I'm not opposed to things being clean, don't get me wrong, but sometimes we forget. I'm looking at construction projects, and you know what? You're looking at one too. Uh, Christ is continually in the building process. The church is a temple, a building. And what's the material? And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. He didn't just create new bricks. He created new bricks 
out of utter death and decay. And He raised us up to spiritual life and He's building this building out of us. It's constructed brick by brick and transformed life by transformed life. It's God's masterpiece on display for all eternity. Chapter 2 starts with our old condition. You hath he quickened who are dead in trespasses and sins. It talks about our lifestyle of utter and total satanic worldliness. And then our new condition is alive to God. Verse 5, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together. What was your condition when God saved you? You know, it wasn't even remotely softening towards Him from His part. We look and say, well, I, I just decided to follow Him. No, not really. God opened your eyes. He opened my eyes. When did He raise me to life? When I was utterly dead and couldn't save myself. That's when. Waving my fist in defiance, He reached down into my own tomb of sin and yanked me out and said, now stand up and live. That's what He's done to every true Christian. Our new condition is alive to God. It's by grace through faith, no boasting. And then verse 10, we see you and I haven't just been saved. We've been saved unto good works. And it's not even a matter of just going out and inventing them. It says God has before ordained you should walk in them. When you came to Christ, not only did God know what gift you were going to get as a Christian, and every Christian has some spiritual gift, but God had already laid out the works He wants you to do. And when we were there, we talked about it was like the bridegroom in the Song of Solomon leaving, uh, leaving that scent on the, on the doorknobs everywhere he'd been. And really all we're doing as Christians is opening the doorknobs where Christ has been ahead of us. Uh, if we don't do that, we don't accomplish much. We don't kick our own doors open. Verse 11 to 22, we find that both Jew and Gentile are, are joined together in God's eternal plan as part of this entity known as the church. Uh, the church has not replaced Israel. Israel is an ethnic people group, an actual nation. But God from eternity past planned to join together those of Jewish ancestry and those of Gentile and to join them together in this entity known as the church. And then in chapter 3, we see, okay, chapter 1, church is a body. Chapter 2, the church is a temple. Chapter 3, the church is a mystery. Bible mystery, you can in fact see the definition right here among other places in verse 5, which in other ages, chapter 3, verse 5, was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto His holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. A Bible mystery is not a whodunit. A Bible mystery is something that God kept hidden in Old Testament times, but has revealed through apostles and New Testament prophets and given it to us in His Word. That's what a Bible mystery is. Uh, in that sense, there are no new mysteries being revealed today. There are things that God has given us in the New Testament. And Paul is saying the church was not revealed in Old Testament times. You find it in seed form, but you don't see it expressly taught. And so there were a lot of questions they had to answer in New Testament theology. When all of a sudden Gentiles are coming to Christ and Gentiles are coming to the Messiah that was supposed to be the Savior of the Jews. That was God's plan all along. And then, of course, we see Paul's prayer, which ends that chapter, chapter 3. And one of the things he prays, note in verse 17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. He's not saying, I wish Jesus would come into your heart. He's talking to save people. What he's praying is that we would learn how to abide in Christ. By the way, if you're saved, Christ doesn't dwell you. But I think what he's getting at is we would have a profound sense of the indwelling Christ. 
and abide in Him and know that without Him we can do nothing. Verse 19, what is it that brings us fullness? To know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. You can mark it down when we're lacking fullness. A hazy view of God's affection towards us is often at the root. That's why so much ink is spilled on that topic about His unchanging and infinite love. All right, the church is a body, the church is a temple, the church is a mystery in Old Testament times revealed in the new. Now that's the doctrinal section, that's the heavenly calling of the church. Chapter 4, we get to the practical. How should we live? How does this translate into Monday morning at the office? Now notice the tone of verse 1. This is such a Pauline statement. I therefore, because of this foundation I've laid, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, what's the tone? I command you and warn you that if you don't do what I'm saying, God's going to descend from heaven and kick you in the head. It's not the tone. I beseech you. It means to beg. Same terminology as Romans 12, by the way, which marks the doctrinal end of the practical section in Romans 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Same language. So Paul lays the doctrinal foundation, and then he comes to us and says, now I'm begging you as prisoner of the Lord that you would walk worthy of the foundation God's given you. That you would know who you are in Christ and grow in manifesting it in your everyday life. Chapter 4, we see the church as a new man, not trying to become something God, so God will be impressed, but rather by faith living out what God has already promised He will do. So the beginning of that chapter of the church is a new man. Again, this is speaking primarily the manifestation is in the local church. There's the exhortation to unity in verses 1 to 6. Note verse 3, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit. That's, those two words are massive, endeavoring and keep. Endeavoring means it takes effort. The word keep means it's already been given. We have to maintain. And it's unity of the Spirit. Once again, Bible unity is not all of us agreeing with each other. Bible unity is all of us growing and agreeing with God. That's the only biblical definition of unity. You see in verse 6, one, there's one God, there's one Father of all. Before that, one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Let me tell you what this is not saying. It's not saying 30,000 people at some Promise Keepers event from 272 denominations are one. That's a lie from hell. What it's saying is there's one biblical Lord. You're either for Him or you're against Him. And it's the one outlined in this book right here. There's one baptism. There's one legitimate way that people are placed into Christ and everything else is a fake. There's one true scriptural hope, and that's the biblical gospel, and everything else is a phony. And on down the line you go, 
That is what produces unity. I think it's interesting. In fact, we were just talking about this in our own family. I think it was last night. Remember at the base of Sinai here in Exodus 32 and they'd made this golden calf and they're going to have this ecumenical worship service and everybody's going to be invited because nobody will be offended, right? And Aaron says, tomorrow's a feast unto the Lord, L-O-R-D, Jehovah. Moses comes down from the mount. Remember what he asked? I don't care what you call this feast. Who's on the Lord's side? Come unto me. Because that is not the Lord's side. It's always been that way. Uh, Bible unity is unity in doctrine. It's unity in, in truth. It's unity under the one Jesus Christ outlined in the Scriptures. That's Bible unity. And uh, part of how this unity is maintained, verses 7 to 11, is the giving of spiritual gifts. You see in verse 7, unto every one of us is given grace. That's talking about spiritual gifts. And it's very legitimate to say, yes, I'm saved. I don't know what my gift is. That's legitimate. I understand we wrestle with that to a point. But it's not legitimate to say I am saved and I don't have a gift. If you are a saved person, you have a spiritual gift. You do. Uh, and by the way, most of the spiritual gifts don't require an official office in the church. It doesn't have to be something stated on the calendar. It's things, and there's ways to determine that. That's another topic. But if you're a Christian, you have a gift. And that's one of the ways that God maintains unity in a local assembly. Somebody says, well, I'm just part of the universal church. How are you exercising your gift in that capacity? I mean, how are you ministering to the Apostle John? He's part of the universal church. How are you ministering to Paul? He is too. He's dead. Okay, The only rational outflow of this is a local church level. So all Christians have some kind of gift, although there may be a struggle figuring out what that is. It's, it's very understandable. They were given at Christ's ascension, verses 8-10. through 10. He ascended up on high and led captivity captive. So from God's timetable, your gift was determined when Jesus ascended up. But from your part, when you were given it, was when you came to Christ. And again, we're not always, it's not like you feel some zap and go, now I have a... When you believed in Christ, among all those positional things that were given, one was some spiritual gift, uh, which primarily is others-focused, by the way. It's not for building you, it's for building others. That's why they're given. That's another topic, too. You may not be aware of it, but there is one there. And... Uh, given at Christ's ascension, and uh, some of these gifts are mentioned in verse 11. He gave some apostles, we see apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastors slash uh, teachers. Uh, we dwelt with that on length at the time, but he mentions these uh, public teaching gifts, which by the way, it's no accident, it says they were given to men. Okay, listen, men and women are on equal footing before God. You ladies that are here, you are every bit as precious to God as the most decorated saint that's ever walked this earth. And don't you let anybody tell you different. We just simply have different functionality. That's it. And by the way, what's the greatest example of that? It's the Trinity. The Trinity, there's equality of person and a, a pecking order of functionality. Ever notice that? What's the order? You can tell me. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Is the Son less than God the Father? No, we maintain He's equal. Uh, biblically, who does the Holy Spirit draw attention to? Not Himself. 
these big movements that, that go on and on about the Holy Spirit, find that in the New Testament. The Holy Spirit shines the spotlight on Christ. That's what He does. Is He less than God? No. But there's a difference in functionality with an equality of person. Same thing with men and women. Difference of functionality. Who determines that? God. I, I'm not better than my wife. For all I know, she might reign over me in the millennium because she's more faithful to her calling than I am. You see what I'm saying? I don't know that. That's determined on faithfulness to what God's designed. But on this earth, there's a difference of functionality and we can be fruitful only in abiding where God's put us. All right, so God mentions these gifted men and apostle and prophet again. Those are no longer in operation. And I do say that dogmatically and boldly. Uh, An apostle is one who had to be with Christ uh, from the baptism of John until his ascension. Paul was the lone exception to that. He's one who had to walk with Christ in the days of his flesh. He had to be there for the crucifixion. He had to physically see with his eyes the resurrected Christ. Nobody meets that qualification today. There are no apostles. And again, New Testament prophets. Uh, Prophets primarily just spoke truth that had already been revealed, but they did have the gift of foretelling until the Scriptures were completed. So in a sense, there's what I'm doing today is prophesying in a sense, but the office of prophet is no longer in existence. I'm not going to get into that on detail again, uh, but I think it's easily provable. We have the Scriptures. Okay, so apostle, prophet, no longer, but there's a continuity in God's work at joining these four together, right in line after them. Our gifts that are still in operation, namely evangelist, and then my contention is that pastor and teacher would be the same, pastor slash teacher. An evangelist in the New Testament is one who preaches the gospel to unreached people groups. An evangelist's burden is going to be to see people come to Christ, start to see them established, and he's going to be off to the next unreached people group. That's a biblical evangelist. A pastor's burden is going to be to stay behind to build up the saints to maturity. And both of those are needed. And both of those are still in operation. Why are these gifts given? Look at verse 12 to 14. Okay, follow the flow of thought. God wants us to have biblical unity in the church. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, sound doctrine. Part of the means of keeping that is the exercise, the mutual exercise of, of the gift uh, that or more that He's given us. A part of that is these particular ones gifted in the public teaching ministry. And what they do is verse 12 to 14. What what? What do the public teaching gifts do? They, for the perfecting of the saints, to bring us to completion, for the work of the ministry, to teach us how to do the work of God, for the edifying or the building up of the body of Christ. How long? Till we all come in the unity of what? Of the faith. Of the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a perfect man, and the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Why? That we be henceforth no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine. So there's a joy there, but there's also a warning. Again, disconnectedness from the local assembly and God's plan puts us in the devil's crosshairs. You see, the thing is, it's not that God needs men. It's not that some men are better than others. That's not the issue. The issue is, what's God's plan and will I submit to it? That's it. So these gifts are given to bring us to spiritual maturity. And by the way, that's why all gifts were given. We can bear that out in other passages. All right, now that summarizes our relationship to other believers within the church. But what about those without? You can see that topic picked up in verse 17. Okay, remember the church is a new man. First half of verse 4, practical section, what do we do? It shows the proper order of things in the church. 
And then verse 17. I mean, what's the capstone statement on our walk towards those that are without? Look at verse 17. This I say, therefore, because of what I've just said, and testify in the Lord that ye henceforth from now on walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind. In other words, instead of being obsessed with showing the world how we are just like them, we should be obsessed with trying to show the world we want to be just like Christ. And can I tell you something? You can't do both. Modern ecumenical ministry philosophy is the dead opposite of verse 17. Put a sign over the door of the church growth movement. It would say, this I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that from henceforth you walk just like the lost world around you so that you can tell them how fun it is to be with Jesus. We can make craft beer just as good as them. We can have the talented bands just as good as them. We can produce just as good of movies as them. We have better light shows than them. We have better donuts than them. Here, come, come to our church. We're just like you. That's so different from what the New Testament teaches. I'm not talking about be weirdo for the sake of being weirdo or be arrogant. God hates pride. Our attitude towards the world is not, oh, I'm so much better than you. Oh, God, help us not to do that. But listen, if you're growing in holiness, you're going to grow in being different from the culture around you. What makes you tick is different. Your motivations are different. Your entertainment's different. Your mindset's different. What makes you laugh is different. What you sing is different. What you say is different. Where you go is different. What you love is different. And what you hate is different. Walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind. Verse 24, put on the new man. Again, God never tells us to stop doing something without giving us the proper replacement. It's a glorious truth. You can trace that all over the Bible. God doesn't merely say, stop thinking like this. He says, think this instead. He doesn't merely say, stop doing this. He says, do this instead. He doesn't say, just put off the old man and create a vacuum. What do I do? I put this off. And I put this on. I replace the evil. Uh, with the good. And again, that can be chased. That can be applied in so many ways. I'm not going to get sidetracked on that. Uh, verse 30, grieve not the Holy Spirit of God. What an amazing statement. You can only grieve somebody who cares about you. Uh, people that you don't care so much for, they may annoy you. They may anger you. They'll do a lot of things, but only someone you love can grieve you. What a, what a deterrent for sin. It doesn't say don't anger the Holy Spirit. You can do that. But He says don't grieve Him. What you watch, He watches. What you say, He is there saying. The conversations you're part of, He's there. Don't cause Him internal agony because He's so indwelling you that He's watching you sin from within and it causes Him pain. What a statement. Grieve not the Holy Spirit. All right. The church is a new man. Verse 5. The church is engaged as the future bride of Christ. Technically, we're not the bride yet. The wedding is uh, later on. But notice verse 1 and 2. Be therefore followers of God as dear children. You see the therefore. He keeps seeing that word again. There's a logical progression. 
All right, because of that, do this. And then because of that, do this. And then because of that. All right, therefore, be therefore. Followers of God as dear children. And note verse 2, and walk in love as Christ also hath loved us and hath given himself. Now I'll point out what I hope is obvious. Walking in love includes a rejection of evil and not whitewashing it. I mean, I find it amazing right after he says walk in love. He says fornication, uncleanness, covetousness, let it not once be named among you as becometh saints. You mean walking in love means that I rebuke sin? Yes, it does mean that. Sometimes that's the most loving thing you could do. Note the possibility of deception. He mentions sins outside, verse 3. He mentions sins of the mouth and mind, verse 4. How about this one, verse 5? For this ye know. Apparently they were well-schooled in what a Christian ought to look like. This ye know that no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater hath any inheritance in the kingdom of God, of Christ, and of God. He's not saying Christians can never commit those, but he's saying somebody who stays in that unrepentant, without misery, unchanged, without discipline, is lost. It's a blunt statement. Look at verse 6. Let no man deceive you with vain words. You mean there's a possibility of me being deceived into changing the definition of what a Christian should look like. Yeah. There's a very real... Are we seeing that today? We see it all over the place. Christian homosexual. You're right, it is an oxymoron. Can, can, can a Christian fall into that? I would say it's possible. But listen, there's a vast difference between helping them out of it and creating a ministry that supports it and applauds it. What if I started a church that said, you know, we're, a, we're an adultery-affirming church here. We just want to help those who, who were born to commit adultery and can't change it. We'll just join together with Ashley Madison and we'll just have, you know, I don't know, adulteresschurch.com. We don't want to be judgmental. I mean, that's the kind of logic that passes for churches today. It really does. It's unbelievable. And Paul says, don't, don't let anyone deceive you with vain words. Uh, what, look at the next verse. Or the next part of verse 6. For because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. God pours out judgment because of those specific sins. How about verse 7? Be ye not therefore partakers with them. You mean God will judge and punish His own children that are sinning like the world? Yes. Kind of reminds me of Revelation 18. You remember uh, commercial Babylon's being judged? And what does the one voice come out and say? Come out of her, my people, that ye be not partakers of her sins and that ye receive not of her plagues. My people? In Babylon? Yes. Friends, there's multitudes of professing Christians today living in Babylon. 
And God's word is come out, lest you receive the same plague. Verse 8, for you were sometimes darkness. Don't forget what you were. And uh, even if you didn't go into some of those depths, don't forget you could have and would have if God didn't stop you. I'm telling you, I, I can remember times in a lost condition where I wanted to enjoy my sin more. And some indescribable something which now I know is a hymn. I was aware of something stopping me and I remember becoming angry. Why can't I do that and enjoy it? Why can't I go further? Why can't I love it? Friends, that's not me. That's grace. And I tell you truly, if God hadn't restrained me, I would have been a total monster hellion. And I know it. And so would you. This uh, next coming, this next section really exposes the modern mindset that the Christian life is all about ease and comfort apart from rules, regulations, and carefulness. In fact, we're right in the middle of this section. Lord willing, we'll dive back into it next week. But tell me if this doesn't outline a narrow way as we just quickly name off some of these verses. In addition to verse in 5 and 6 where I said that where it says, don't let anyone deceive you and God's wrath comes on the children of disobedience for these things. How about verse 7? Don't be a partaker with them. How about verse 10? Develop a testing mindset and prove everything by the Scriptures. By the way, look at verse 10. Notice what that says. Pay careful attention in chapter 5, verse 10. Notice it doesn't say trying to find why something is wrong. What does it say? Proving what is acceptable to the Lord. Friends, it's the carnal mind that says, show me why it's wrong and I'll stop. It's the spiritual mind that says, show me why it's right or I'm not doing it. You see the difference? Proving what is acceptable, running everything through the filter of scriptures. Verse 11, separate from and expose error. Well, that'll end the party. Verse 12, don't even talk about the filth of the world. It's not funny to God. Verse 14, wake up out of sleep. Verse 15, walk carefully. Verse 16, militantly guard your time usage. You're not getting it back. Verse 17, continually put an effort to know and do the will of God. You know what that is? That's a narrow way. It is. How about verse 18? Notice it's a command, be filled with the Spirit. I can't wait to get to that section. There's a lot to say on it. But it's our failure that gets in the way ultimately. But notice this. Out of verse 18, be filled with the Spirit. What, what's the outflow of it? Be filled with the Spirit and you'll fall down and bark like a dog and speak in tongues. Or fill in the blank. What, what is the evidence? What's the New Testament evidence of the filling of the Spirit? What's the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians? Is it signs and wonders? No, it's everyday Christian character which is what you see here. You're filled with the Spirit. What does it affect? It affects what comes out of your mouth, singing to yourself, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Being full of the Spirit leads to the right kind of music in your heart. Being filled with the Spirit, verse 20, leads to, it lends itself to a constant attitude of thanksgiving. Verse 21, being filled with the Spirit is manifested in a submissive attitude to God first. 
which gives me a right perspective of everyone around me. You, I mean, what, what's the fruit of the Spirit produced? That's it. The rest of this chapter is the outflow of that. By the way, submitting ourselves to one another in the fear of God, uh, you husbands, you submit to your wife in that. You submit to God first so that your submission to her means you take up the mantle of leadership to help her to be what God wants her to be. Bible submission isn't passive doormat. Bible submission is primarily God-centered, and it's I'm going to fulfill my role so that those around me can spiritually flourish. That's Bible submission. That's a huge concept. So many view it as passive. Wife, submit to your husband, and, and some people can stand up and do that just means be a lay down and be a doormat and get. No. It's in the fear of God. You fulfill your role for the Lord's sake, so that he can be what God wants him to be. Wife, same thing. Husband or husband, same thing. Children, same thing. In fact, uh, <clears throat> if you'll notice uh, what it illustrates for the Christian in this whole section, there, there's no such thing as a purely horizontal relationship. In other words, every, every relationship of human life, the central question is, what does God have to do with this? Notice the flow. Look at verse 22. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands. How? As unto the Lord. Verse 25. Husbands, love your wives. How? Even as Christ also loved the church. Uh, chapter 6, verse 1. Children, obey your parents. How? In the Lord. Uh, verse 5. Servants, be obedient to them that are your masters. How? As unto Christ. What does he tell masters? Verse 9, knowing that your master also is in heaven. We don't have horizontal relationships as Christians. Interpersonal conflict is always a result of one thing. One or more parties are out of fellowship with God. And uh, until that's swallowed and dealt with, there's no real lasting help. Now you take the parties, whoever they are, if both are saved. I guarantee you if both of them determine they're going to adjust their will to God's, that relationship can be very fruitful. But I guarantee you if one or both won't do that, trouble's ahead. I know it's more complicated than that, but that's the root issue all the time. Children, why should you obey your parents? Because they'll beat you. Right? Look, I know spankings, are, they deter evil. I get that. But ultimately, why should you obey? Because the Lord's watching. Uh, why, why, should I, why should I love my wife and give myself because God is watching? Wives, why should you? Uh, same reason. God is watching. Triangular relationships. Uh, which, by the way, let me point out again, the whole context of that is being filled with the Spirit, which leads to right music, right thanksgiving, right submission, which fixes my earthly relationships, but that comes from out of walking in adjustment to the Spirit of God within me. That flow of thought is massive. The rest of chapter 6, the church is a soldier. The church is a new man. The church is the bride, future bride of Christ. The church is a soldier. I wonder when the last time you parents went to the playground and you saw somebody standing there in body armor. Probably hasn't happened for a while. Uh, when's the last time you went to some party wearing a combat helmet and a flak jacket? 
probably haven't unless it was some weird costume party or something. What's my point? Those are the elements of war. It's not a playground and a party. What's my point? Why emphasize the church as a soldier? Friends, here's why. We are to put on the whole armor of God. You don't put on the armor, you don't stand. But here's the scary thing. It's possible to think you're standing when you're not. Remember James says, be doers of the word, not hearers only. Deceiving your, and say deceiving everybody else, deceiving your own selves. Uh, in a real battlefield, a guy laying face down in the turf is not real convincing when he says, I'm standing. But in the Christian life, it can happen. A guy can actually be laying down in the muck with the devil walking all over his back, all the while loudly crying how close he is to God. That's scary. It's very scary. No armor, no standing. It's a dangerous world for the Christian. All the armor is needed. And God doesn't give warning without good reason. And He says to put it on. In other words, just having it. You see those signs around click it or ticket. Imagine somebody gets in a wreck and gets thrown from the car and they say, man, that's weird. I had a seatbelt. Were you wearing it? No, but I had it. <laughs> Wheel may be spinning, but the hamster's dead, right? You, you and I have armor. God says, put it on. Put it on. And He names those pieces because the enemy lurks continually seeking to exploit any weakness and use it to destroy us. The Christian life, yes, there's joy, but intermingled with that, it's a life of soberness. We're pilgrims in a barren land and real rest comes when the sword is laid down after this life. We were talking about that in Sunday school this morning. When we come, the, the saints of God come out of heaven with Christ at the second coming in Revelation 19, what do they not have? They have no weapon, no helmet, no armor. Do you know why? Because they don't need it. The war's over. And uh, we follow King Jesus down, but we don't fire a shot. All He does is speak. And the war's over. But friends, listen for now. Positionally, we're in white, white robes. But practically in this life, armor. Armor. It's war. The church is a soldier. It's very popular to sell Christianity as a means to wealth. Happiness is the final end, the jolliest thing imaginable. A social cake with spiritual sprinkles on top. That's not the Bible picture. Not at all. It's a war. If you're called to Christ, you're enlisted as a soldier in the most long-standing and fierce conflict the world has ever seen with enemies within and without in verse 18, we see one of the greatest battles. What is it? Verse 18. I find the flow of thought very interesting here. It names the armor. 15, 16, 17. Helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. What's the next statement? Praying always with all prayer. The greatest part of the battle is what? Prayer closet. I mean, all our experiences are different, but I can tell you in my own life, sometimes I feel like all the forces of hell are centering on that one place. Even if He can get me to prepare to preach without prayer, 
He counted a victory. Battle is prayer. Of course, Paul's the shining example of the soldier in the Lord's army, but look at verse uh, chapter 6, uh, verse 19. And for me. <laughs> it says, when you're praying with all perseverance for all saints, don't forget this guy right here. I, I'm serious. Practically, I would think of Paul as a guy who doesn't need much prayer. Right? He's, man, he's an island unto himself. Paul, Paul wouldn't have told you. I mean, read Romans 7 and tell me Paul thought that. He knew himself. The same guy that called himself the chief of sinners. He says, pray for me. Pray for me what? Get me out of prison? Fill my bank account? No. Pray for me that utterance may be given unto me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. Amazing. It's not that it's wrong to pray to get out of prison. We have other records of, of them doing that and God granting it. But Paul's was his burden that I'd open my mouth boldly and preach the gospel. He says, for which I'm an ambassador in bonds. Think about that statement. What, what did Rome think of Paul? He, a prisoner. Prisoner N67 B64-8 or whatever it was. What did Paul say about it? An ambassador in bonds. <laughs> a sent one of the Lord who's a missionary from the Roman prison system, and happily so. What a statement. See, he had a sovereign lens over the whole thing. He realized his holy calling as well as his human weakness and tendency to remain silent when opportunities arose. Friends, listen, it is a difficult thing, and I do, Lord willing, want to deal with evangelism. I'll be candid, I'm, I'm wrestling with it more scripturally in recent days because I want to have a biblical picture of it. There, there's a lot of stuff out there that's wrong on both sides. On one side, it's too shallow. The other side, it's too forceful, like some kind of sales presentation. And sometimes it's presented like some sort of guilt. If you don't ramrod it down everyone's throat, you, you don't love God. Well, friend, look, you can damage people spiritually by trying to cram the gospel down their throat. I've done that. I've done that to people. I really have. When I was newly saved, I thought I had to. And uh, I did a lot more damage sometimes than good when I got in somebody's grill and the energy of the flesh for a big argument just to prove how zealous I was. There is very much a way of walking in the Spirit through this. But Paul wanted to know when to speak and to open his mouth when it was time. All right, conclusion though. Paul, we know him. How about Tychicus, verse 21? He's the faithful brother. Timothy, Apostle John, every one of these first century saints has finished their race. They've laid down their arms for good. They no longer need a sword or a helmet or armor. But for us, it remains. You, if a Christian, are chosen by the Father, redeemed by the Son, sealed by the Spirit. You're called to be a part of this body, bride, and building known as the church, which is universal in a sense, but manifested in local assemblies like this. And we are expected to have true Bible-based unity to know and exercise our respective gifts which are aimed toward increased maturity, discernment, and fruitfulness all for the Lord's sake. Glory to God in the church by Jesus Christ. We're called to walk carefully and wisely in a world full of evil where even the skies around us are brimming with satanic spirits expecting warfare with darkness so long as we dwell here, but also this, expecting the gospel to rescue others from pagan darkness and to bring them to maturity as children of light 
and confident of our own holy calling purely by grace and of the glorious future inheritance that awaits us in heaven when this life is over. And so the cycle continues until the head of the church returns for us in the clouds. What a position we've been given, but what a battle we have to face. But let's face it. Let's pray. Father, I pray that You'd uh, help us to understand this book uh, so that we can better understand how to walk with You. Father, You know our own evil hearts that we take with us right into salvation. And our own wicked natures, Lord, they want to take orthodoxy and turn it into deadness. And our nature wants to take right positions to arrogate ourselves and beat people over the head. And our, our nature wants to take Your grace and try to use it as something to brag about as though we're better. Lord, in that respect, I pray You'd humble us in the dust. Let us never forget what we would be and what we were apart from grace. Lord, let us learn to boast in one thing, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ and His magnificent love for us and for all who will come. Help us, Lord, to be soldiers, ambassadors, holy in our daily calling for Your sake. In Jesus' name, Amen.